Hey, I'm John Marr, and I'm here today with Mike Capuccio, founder of NETR Inc., a heating and cooling company in Massachusetts with a focus on Mitsubishi ductless heating and cooling products. Welcome, Mike. Morning, John. How are you? Good, thanks. And also with us is Brett Rogensky, general manager of NETR Inc. Welcome, Brett. Hey, good morning, John. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. And our special guest today is Dana Fisher, director of regulatory strategy at Mitsubishi Electric. Thanks for joining us, Dana. Hey, John. Total pleasure to be here this morning. Great. So, so Dana, how did you get into this industry and eventually uh, come to work for Mitsubishi Electric? Yeah, it's been quite an interesting journey for me. I, you know, I know a lot of people in the industry that, that get into the manufacturers have spent a lot of time in the HVAC industry or working through distributors. I've kind of had a, a little uh, of a different uh, method getting in here. I've been with Mitsubishi for about five years and served in different roles in, in sales across northern New England, um, as well as on the utility team uh, covering uh, rebate programs and incentives across the East Coast. And I've recently transitioned to a role that's more associated with uh, regulatory affairs and sort of the national scene. But prior to uh, Mitsubishi, I was at Efficiency Maine as a program manager for about seven years. I helped set up the rebate programs and loan programs for uh, residential contractors and consumers um, in, in the state of Maine, um, including heat pumps. And, and, you know, sort of the advent and, and takeoff of heat pumps in the state of Maine. And so that's really where I kind of cut my teeth on on this particular technology that we're going to talk about this morning. But even before that, I was into uh, renewable energy, solar thermal activities, but I was also in the municipal finance business. I was a tax collector and finance director for a couple of towns in Maine. I I was in the semiconductor industry for a short period of time. And back in the 90s, I was a microbrewer. Um, so, <laughs> you know, it's kind of, a, you know, that's not typically the route that gets you where where I'm headed or what I'm up to. But I spend a lot of time thinking about heat pumps, just like uh, Mike and Brett here. Pretty much I wake up in the morning thinking about heat pumps and uh, much to everyone's chagrin, I'm I'm still talking about them at the end of the day. Right. So, uh, um, you know, I'm, I'm all in and uh, I just see this incredible transformation of our uh, heating and cooling of buildings across the United States. But in New England, for sure, uh, you know, this absolute move away from fossil fuels to just plain old stop burning stuff. And, and heat pumps are really the answer. And uh, we're really excited uh, to be engaged with uh, the, everyone to, to, to make this a reality. Right. And as we mentioned, you're, you're currently the director of regulatory strategy at Mitsubishi Electric. What does that mean? And, and, and what is your kind of current focus? Well, so I'm I'm leading a team in 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 our corporate group that uh, basically monitors all of the codes and regulations that occur on the national uh, and uh, uh, international across uh, you know North America and South America, you know. So like all the codes and standards and regulatory testing, um, you know, and and like. Just last month, the U.S. Senate uh, ratified the Kigali Agreement that puts us online with a number of other countries that are uh, for the the ramp down in in uh, the impact of refrigerants uh, globally. So that's something that we've been you know monitoring very closely, and of course that requires transitions in the kind of equipment over the next few years that are in, in the refrigerant 
refrigerants that are going to be used um, that have a lower and lower global warming potential impact. So, you know, that it's uh, it's some pretty dry toast that I'm dealing with these days. But the sort of the bright spot is I also get to engage in a lot of these national conversations uh, around like federal legislation and, and incentives and that sort of thing. Okay. So I'll ask you, Dana, and then maybe we can open it up to, uh, to Mike and, and Brett as well. Um, you know, what current trends you're seeing both, you know, in the industry as a whole and specifically in terms of uh, heat pumps and, and, and um, you know, Mitsubishi specifically? Well, you know, we honestly, New England has been a little bit ahead of the curve of, and, and other pockets around the country, Pacific Northwest as well, have been ahead of the curve in adopting this new emerging technology uh, around cold climate heat pumps for the United States. And, you know, we really think, oh, my gosh, it's this new thing and can it work here? But frankly, this technology, this platform of mini splits and multi splits have been employed in Asia and in Europe for many years uh, before we got started here in New England and proven to operate. But really, the big trend across the Northeast is basically you know, whether it's partial or whole home, a, com- a conversion of our heating systems over to uh, heat pumps with variable speed compressors and, uh, you know, advanced refrigerants that allow the systems to deliver comfort and heating performance, even when it's ridiculously cold outside. So, um, you know, the systems are rated to continue to operate to negative 18. And I've seen examples of them continuing to operate below that. I live in Maine. And I heat my house entirely with uh, cold climate heat pumps, have been for a number of years. And, you know, I used exactly zero backup last year uh, through the coldest January in 14 years. Um, so I can I can testify um, and my family can as well. <laughs> We're perfectly comfortable without any uh, anything besides cold climate heat pumps operating. Yeah. Uh, Mike, do you uh, have anything to add to that in terms of you know trends that you've uh, seen recently? I mean, you've been in the industry and been working with heat pumps for many, many years. Yeah. I mean, John, I have ASOC pumps in my own home too as well. Um, I can vouch to it that it does work. You know, a lot of people don't think the technology is there yet. You know, that we're still, you know, running into some homeowners every now and then that think it's, you know, like the 1980s and you know, early 90s where heat pumps had a bad name that heat pumps did not heat when it was cold out and they were very, very expensive to operate. And the, a lot of the reasons were were below 32 degrees. You really couldn't get a lot of heat out of them. And it had a very high kilowatt electric heater in the ductwork that was pretty much like putting a gigantic toaster in your ductwork and turning that on and turning the heat pump off and letting that run so basically you're providing you know full electric heat into your home and people were getting you know enormous electric bills to heat their homes when it was below 32 degrees saying well you know why is this like you know i it's a heat pump well it's really not it's electric heat at that time so um, but, but that's your grandmother's heat pump. That's not. Yeah, how those are. times have changed now. And we're trying to spread that message across with our customers now because you still have, you know, you still sometimes hear that from people that they don't fully understand, you know, what these costs to operate sometimes. Yeah, the total. I mean, like, granted, I live in a relatively small place, uh, you know, in Portland, Maine, a nice place to hang out, um, you know, but it's an old house, like 1820s. Um, you know, and it, it's petite, 1,400 square feet of, of heated space. Um, and I have two units in my house uh, to heat the entire space. 
And last year with electricity at, you know, it's a little cheaper electricity in Maine than, than in other parts of New England, um, at 21 cents a kilowatt hour, my total electric bill for my heating for the entire season was $1,100. Wow. That's amazing. Wow. That's amazing. Brett, do you have any uh, recent trends that you've been seeing? Well, yeah, I mean, we, you know, the consumers are becoming much more educated to heat pumps, but you're right. There's a lot of common misconceptions that are still out there, you know, about heat pumps, which, which we just talked about. You know, the other thing is, I, I think there's some misconceptions about actually the area that we live in. For instance, you know, Boston, once people understand that heat pumps are effective, to uh to negative 13 easily you know then people are like well yeah but you know i live in massachusetts it gets cold here and that sort of stuff uh you know i was looking at something mike shared with me a while ago in boston and this was this is from one or two winters ago you know we only spent a total of i think 46 hours below zero in boston itself you know below zero so you know well within the range of heat pumps and uh, I think a lot of times folks, uh, you know, we have this idea that we're rugged New Englanders and it's, you know, super cold. Well, it's it's we really don't spend that much time in that uh, coldest part of the zone. Um, so it's really not much of a challenge for heat pumps to keep up. So that's something that I think is a, a misconception out there with consumers that uh, we're working hard to, to help them understand. Right. It does get down to, uh, like you said, below zero, but only for a few days. And even on those few days, maybe only for a few hours over in the, mid the middle of the night. And, and, yeah. that, and that's it. And then during yeah. the day, it warms back up to, you know, 10 or 20 or even 30 degrees or something like Think that. Think about so. that. 46 hours total over the course of an entire winter. You're talking a couple hours here, a couple hours there. We're, we're not in Fairbanks, Alaska. Yeah. So. Right. yeah. Well, even where it is ridiculously cold, I got a, I got a social media text from a contractor out in Colorado up in the mountains last year, and he went to check on a property that he installed a Mitsubishi Hyperheat in, uh, and the ambient temperature was negative 26 degrees Fahrenheit, and the indoor temperature of that vacation home up in the mountains was 69 degrees Fahrenheit. So, like, you know, even when it's beyond what you would think is possible, you know, these heat pumps can perform and deliver incredible comfort. Like I said, like, no backup heat last winter at all. Um, and, you know, even when it was like I, I, I took snapshots of uh, January 11th, it was here in Portland, it was two degrees Fahrenheit. And one of the strange things about last winter is we had a bunch of really cold weather with wind and usually it's pretty still, but it was blowing like 30 miles an hour. So I had a wind chill factor of like negative 14. And I know it was similar down, you know, Worcester County and everything else around around that neck of the woods. And the two heat pumps that I had were only drawing at, at its peak on the, that incredibly cold day, 3,100 watts. It's the same as like running a, a vacuum cleaner in a toaster oven. I mean, like incredibly efficient. Um, and as I mentioned before, just perfect comfort. Yeah, we forget that the, the, the wind chill factor is not the actual ambient temperature outside. So, you know, the heat pump doesn't know that the wind's blowing. Yeah, totally. Yeah, it doesn't mind the wind chill at all. But, you know, I mean, like it does increase the load on your house for sure, just like it does, you know, it, uh, for, for people walking around outside. Right, right. So, Dana, how will the, uh, the recent Inflation Reduction Act affect the heating and cooling industry and, and consumers as you see it? Yeah, you know, it, if anything, it's just going to really dramatically increase demand all across the country uh, for the next ten years. Uh, there are there are some pretty substantial uh, incentives incorporated into that, but they're still a little ways off. They're probably not going to get implemented until sometime into twenty twenty three. 
you know, the, the rebates that people talk about, uh, the amount of money that's actually allocated to that when you separate it out to all the states, because the state energy offices are going to be the recipients of those grant dollars to set up the programs. They're probably not going to receive guidance on those programs until mid to late spring. And then the states are going to take some time to set those up. And frankly, when you start breaking it all up into the individual states um, and looking at the criteria, there's a very good chance that most of those funds are going to appropriately, I might add, be allocated towards um, you know lower income homes that really have a tremendous heat burden. And so like folks that are on the fence trying to decide whether they're going to, you know, pull the trigger and do heat pumps now or later, kind of based on some of those things, they might want to really just focus on like, you know, Massachusetts, the the incentives are incredibly rich and what a great opportunity to just jump into heat pumps right now. Um, So, you know, like there may be things coming down the road, but it should not dissuade you from, from taking steps uh, to to get a package uh, sooner than later, um, you know, particularly with the incredible uh, high uh, uh, fuel costs this winter. I mean, if you're on oil or propane, boy, it's going to be a tough winter uh, for your pocketbook. And, uh, you know, having a heat pump augment that or displace that is going to provide you, you know, a pretty big bonus set of savings in this first year. And I don't know what the price of fossil fuels are going to do over time, but I'm willing to bet that that uh, we're all going to do better uh, by having heat pumps. And and frankly, you know, as the grid gets cleaner and cleaner, it's just better and better for the environment to have a heat pump instead of continuing to burn stuff. Right. Brett, how how does the Inflation Reduction Act, you know, kind of line up uh, with you in terms of, you know, uh, again, the the current mass save rebates that are available right now? And, and, you know, what are you advising for uh, consumers at this point? Sure. The uh, as Dana said, you know, Massachusetts has really taken a good leadership position in what's available through Mass Save rebates. So, uh, without going you know too far down the details, you know, there are rebates, whole home rebates available to consumers up to ten thousand uh, dollars, and then other partial rebates available in in other increments below that. That's a very robust program, and and also as Dana said, it's going to take. Uh, months for the uh, Inflation Reduction Act funds to be allocated and to be for the programs to be set up um, across the, uh, you know, across the various states. So, um, you know, our advice to consumers is, you know, it's a little bit of bird in the hand, two in the bush here. You know, the do you really want to wait till next summer when that gets settled and pay for, you know, I don't know what oil is going to be. I saw predictions the other day uh, in the media of six dollars or six dollar plus oil. So do you want to do you want to wait until next summer and pay for six dollar oil all this winter? Or would you rather, you know, implement a heat pump now and uh, and and take care, you know, take advantage of those robust, um, you know, rebates that are available. The other thing that, that Dana mentioned as well is um, the IRA is going to really increase demand, you know, so there's already a lot of demand uh, in the heat pump market. And as demand increases, you know, we can only serve people in kind of a first come serve, first served manner. So the folks who wait till next summer uh, when maybe demand is peaking on that, uh, may have to unfortunately wait a little longer for the implementation of those heat pumps than the folks who decide to uh, take advantage of it now, uh, take advantage of those fuel savings, uh, and take advantage of uh, materials that are, that may prove to be a little a little more readily available. 
What about uh, upgrading, uh, you know, electrical panel service? Is that uh, part of the Inflation Reduction Act? And is that a necessary part of, you know, upgrading your home before getting uh, heat pumps installed? Or is that just a, you know, a good idea given, given all of the electronics that, that, you know, current houses use, you know, to, to make sure that your electrical panels are up to date? Yeah, yeah. Again, I mean, you know, we'll, we'll see how how the programs actually get implemented. I, again, I think that there's a pretty good chance that some of those those programs and federal funds might get rolled into existing programs. And so, like, you know, for some states that are already, you know, have robust rebate programs, it might just get kind of folded in. You know, there are plenty of states around the country that don't have any energy efficiency rebates whatsoever. And so the the, the federal dollars might really make a a big impact and stimulate the start of something. But in states that are more established, you know, like, like Massachusetts or, you know, Maine or what, it's probably going to get folded into existing programs. But Mike and Brett might have a better, you know, understanding of exactly how frequently people have to upgrade their panels. There are potentially incentives for that. And while, you know, if you have really old uh, panel or service, it's plausible that if you're going to go and uh, put in an electric car and completely switch over to heat pumps that you might need to jump up to 200 amp service. But, you know, most homes, it's plausible to convert over to heat pumps and continue to use like an 100 amp panel as long as you've got space. And even if you don't have space, you might be able to set up a sub panel that wouldn't require or require you to totally change your service. It really depends. And so like, I don't know when I gauge people, uh, you know, contractors, generally it's a pretty low percentage of homes that need to have a sub panel added and an even lower percentage of homes that need to have a panel upgrade, but you'd, you'd totally have to consult with your heat pump professional and the electricians that they work with. Mike, what do you, what do you, how often do you see that kind of thing happen? I would probably say a full upgraded panel from 100 amps to 200 amps is probably 10 to 15% of the time because most homes that have a 100 amp panel are natural gas homes. You know, so they're not using an electric stove, an electric dryer, things like that, electric hot water. You know, when you start to look at all of those things on the panel, a lot of it is their lighting loads, lighting and just, you know, refrigerator, basic appliances, things like that. And if you've really... If you actually strap an amp clamp on that during the day on the main the main two lines and you look at what those houses are drawing, sometimes it's, you know, 20, 30 amps. I mean, you, you do have enough electricity most of the time with a 100 amp panel. Sometimes a sub panel needs to be added. I mean, that could probably be 30, 40 percent of the time. But, you know, in, in a lot of homes do have 200 amps now and you see those in the natural gas homes, too. But, you know, I mean, using heat pumps with natural gas, too, I mean, it's it. It can be used in conjunction with natural gas. I mean, most people you see doing that are more of the environmental conscious people with natural gas because there's a lot of calculators out there that you can run natural gas against a heat pump. And, you know, there's a lot of myths, you know, it could be more, it could be less. You know, that all depends on what the envelope of the home is like, too. If the home is well insulated, it could be cheaper to use a heat pump. You just don't know. So, I mean, you know, a lot of that needs to be brought into the into the equation when you're looking at installing one of these into your home. But, you know, electrical is definitely a major part of it. And I do know now at NETR, we have a full electrical staff on board and we can perform those services, you know, whether it's an upgrade, a panel upgrade or a service upgrade as well. So we're, we're equipped to do that now. 
Dana brought up a good point, uh, too, which is that, you know, a lot of states uh, don't even have these sort of uh, environmental regulations where, you know, maybe they're offering rebates for, for you know, up- upgrading your, your home and, th- and things like that. I know you've had a lot of experience on the, you know, the state and municipal level over the years and seen a lot of things that Massachusetts has done to, you know, really sort of push for more efficient systems like heat pumps. You know, t- can you talk a little bit more about that and, and what you've seen over the years with, uh, in terms of, again, both Massachusetts as a state and, and uh, towns around the Boston area? Yeah, you know, I, I mean, it's it's exciting, uh, the, the the activity that's happened all across, across the state. I was just on a call uh, the other day with uh, representatives or, or members of uh, HeatSmart all across Massachusetts. And I mean, you just you just have you know all these people that are charged up to to make this transition happen. It's a phenomenon. It sort of just sort of rockets and takes off like like a like you know sort of like the you know microbial growth or yeast <laughs> population increase that you might see in in making beer. And you know that kind of growth pattern occurred in Scandinavia about you know ten fifteen years prior to the start in New England. And at this point in Norway. 60% of homes in Norway are using heat pumps to heat their homes, high performance, variable capacity heat pumps. And they're installing 100,000 units per year, which is, you know, I mean, their and their population is comparable to Massachusetts. So like, can we get to four or five times the number of installs per year in Massachusetts? Absolutely. If they can do it in Norway, we can certainly do it here. Pacific Northwest as well in the United States. I heard the other day I was talking to a distributor out there and he was telling me about 32% of homes in the Pacific Northwest now have a heat pump in them. So that's a that's a big number up, you know, in that Washington, Oregon area, Idaho, out in that area. That's a that's an exploding area in the United States right now for heat pumps, even up in Alaska. I spent some time with um, a big distributor out there in Washington State, uh, couple of years back and I was amazed at how many contractors from Alaska were there. So I mean think about that. Alaska they they and there a lot of heat pumps getting put in in Alaska now too. Yeah. Yeah, no there's a, there's interesting energy dynamics all over the place. You know the Pacific Northwest has an awful lot of hydro so they have a higher percentage of electric resistance homes. And so you put in a heat pump on a, a home that has electric resistance, you're cutting your energy costs by two thirds. I mean it's just it's dramatic. And so, you know, there's really a big incentive to do that. And there's part like similarly, you know, there are a lot of parts of Alaska that have significant hydro resources and rely on electric. So, you know, it's really every part of the country has some, you know, a different uh, energy mix and different issues. You know, so even even, you you know, Texas in the south, you know, we think of a couple of years back where they had these big problems in Texas with the electric grid and the peak heating. Well, more than 50% of Texas uses electric resistance heat. And so, you know, when it gets really cold, everything's going to electric resistance heat. But if all of those homes had had high performance cold climate heat pumps, even though it's Texas and, you know, you wouldn't think of it as cold climate, they could have not had the crisis that they experienced just because the electric demand for heating would have been two thirds lower. I mean, it's really, you know, Heat pumps are the solution to a lot of different energy problems all around the country. And the efficiency they would have got on the cooling side, too, when the cooling demands are, are drastically high, too. Yeah, it would, would have been a twofold. They would have won both ways. But you know, I want to add something to what Brett was saying as far as installation goes, too. You know, you start thinking of the heating season 
for this heating season coming up. But, you know, when you roll the clock forward a little bit and here comes, you know, May, June, July of next year. Well, you know what? You're not waiting for that one month, six week installation to happen for your air conditioning at that point, because at that point it's already done. You know, you're, you're, you're way ahead of the curve at that point, you know, from an air conditioning standpoint. So it's, it's, again, it's a twofold. I couldn't agree more, Mike. I mean, we, uh, this isn't a seasonal item We're we're installing, you know, year round here and yeah, you're right. You know, maybe your primary thing is that, Hey, I'm going to put this in to help reduce my fuel costs in the winter. But then all of a sudden when that temperature or humidity spikes up in June, you're not, uh, you're not wondering what to do with your air conditioning. Your system is, is right there. It's the same yeah. system because again, a heat pump is replacing, you know, in a traditionally heated and cooled home, it's replacing your heating system and your cooling system all in one. Yeah. I mean, I roll the clock back 20 years ago, 25 years ago when I first started selling heat pumps and it was, you know, it was just a, a one unit for maybe a sunroom or something like that, or an addition on a home. It was mainly used for air conditioning. It didn't really heat that well. And, you know, then the, the two zones and the three zones came out and it kind of, oh, here's a little bit of a partial home application for a little bit of supplemental heat and air conditioning. And now, you know, fast forward the clock 20 years later and it's now it's, it's not really an air conditioning product. It still is. Don't get me wrong, but it's becoming more of all we've spoken about on this podcast is about heating and sure. it's, it's a heating product. It's, it's, it's a whole different ball game for heat pumps now it's it's the way things have changed and i mean i've had a lot of fun doing it and you know i've learned a lot over the past you know 32 years of being in business but i've watched this this i'm gonna say snowball just keep rolling and rolling and rolling to a gigantic snowman now is what i'm gonna say yeah you know you're tickling me with that because you know it's like we're just coming out of the summer here and i mean like you know we don't use a ton of air conditioning in Maine, but when it does get humid and it gets hot, boy, these heat pumps work fantastic for that. And the the uh, the cost of operating them is so low uh, relative to just about every other way of providing air conditioning. They're so quiet. Just, you know, what a pleasure to have an oasis uh, during those uncomfortable periods of time, um, you know, that occur in the middle of the summer. So it's, yeah. when you put in the heat pump, um, you're really getting, uh, you know, high performance year round, comfort year round. It's a, it's an incredible luxury to provide for yourself and your family. I also think that there's some, you know, as as I hear Mike talk about how it's evolved, you know, form factors of the units themselves have evolved too. You know, Mike, when you started, it was probably all wall units, correct? And oh yeah, and now yeah, now we have you know wall units, we have floor units, we have you know, recessed ceiling cassettes that just blend away into the ceiling. We have ducted air handlers that tie into existing ductwork or other, like a more conventional hot air, hot air, you know, or, or, or cool air system. Yeah. So uh, it's, it's, it's probably a pretty amazing evolution for you to have seen. It's been really fun watching because I've been involved in a lot of those talks with people, you know, where we've sat at Mitsubishi dealer meetings and we've, we've sat around a table with a products person and they're like, you know, what do you guys need in the industry? Like what, what do we need for change? You know, what are we seeing? And, you know, when you get guys talking about, Hey, we need a ducted unit, we need to be able to replace a, an air handler with a ducted Mitsubishi air handler that will give heat and cool. And, you know, we want to replace it or add it in a home and, you know, and we need a ceiling recess unit. I mean, all of those products have evolved out of contractors telling 
the manufacturer what what the United States market needs today. I mean, you know, it started with you know another examples like the EF units, the wall mounted units, you know, in black, silver, and white. You know, we need different choices. We need different designer units. You know, we need ceiling recessed units. It's it's all come from you know and just an evolving group of people with knowledge on heat pumps that know what we want in our marketplace. And I'm going to tell you, they go back to the drawing board and they design it. And a couple of years later, here it is. And, you know, I'm hearing a lot of chatter about some new products coming out. And I think, you know, there's going to be a lot, there's going to be a lot more changes in the next, you know, three to five years. It's not going to stay the way it is. It's going to change even more now. Well, we we don't even have to wait that long. You know, we're, we're very close to the launch of the, of the uh, IntelliAir units that will, um, you know, basically add on, you know, if you have a gas furnace right now that uh, that has an air conditioning coil on top that's uh, getting ready to give up the ghost, we're going to have a product rolling out very shortly mm-hmm. that will basically replace that case coil and allow you to receive all the benefits of a Mitsubishi system, the, the heating capacity at super cold temperatures, incredibly efficient cooling mm-hmm. um, in place of that coil. And it will be able to communicate with and leverage the blower uh, and controls on your gas furnace to optimize your uh, your usage of the heat pump um, uh, throughout the season. So it's sort of a swap in, doesn't require you to make drastic changes to your overall system. And then, you know, for those folks that are still kind of on the fence as to whether this technology can do it or not, um, they can have that sort of security blanket and knowing that the gas furnace is still there and that if there was ever a need for uh, their gas furnace to operate, that we'd automatically kick on. Honestly, I, I think it wouldn't take very long before you figure out that you're really not going to end up using very much gas. No. But it's a it's a great format for that, and uh, and we're very excited about that. And that, that should be um, available to uh, contractors in and consumers in the next just in the next couple of months. Dana, you brought up uh, Europe uh, briefly. You know, how does America compare in terms of saturation of people using heat pumps in 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 America versus other countries or regions like like Europe? And how does America get to that point where they're you know on a comparable stage, you know, to to where Europe is? Yeah, yeah. So I mean, like you know, the the sort of the leader, the world leader in terms of saturation, really is uh, is Norway, and they're at uh, you know at sixty percent or above, and uh, most of Scandinavia is right around that level. And then as you get into Europe, it kind of tails off a little bit, um, you know, down into the ten twenty percentage range, something like that. Um, at this point, I think I think Maine and Vermont, uh, if they haven't already done it, they're right at 10 percent at this point maybe approaching 15 percent of of uh of of utilization i'm not exactly sure where the rest of new england is uh but below that and i think what what happens is you get this sort of early adopter phenomenon where people start installing them and then it spreads by word of mouth you know having incentives like the ones available at mass save are a big big part of it but one of the other keys that occurred in in uh, Scandinavia and is kind of spread to other parts of Europe are bans on fossil fuels over time. So in Norway, they kind of like a while back, they set a thing and said, oh, no new oil boilers in new construction. And then they said in this future date, and they ended up setting it for 2020, that was sort of the end of their timeline. They said after 2020, 
no more oil can be burned in homes. And so everybody was kind of given the heads up way in advance, like, okay, we've got to, we've got to transition to something else because we've got a limited amount of time before we can't use that. And this varies very much by states. I mean, there are plenty of states that ban bans, but there are plenty of states on the East and West Coasts that are instituting fossil fuel bans of one form or another. And that's sort of the other part of this is that in order to manifest this transition in the fastest time possible, you need both incentives, but you also need sort of a, a you know, an end of the road uh, for some of these other technologies uh, so that we can make this transition methodically, thoughtfully, and with the least amount of disruption to homeowners and uh, the industry. Brett, do you see a lot of, uh, you know, change in, in terms of, you know, Dana mentioned that one small part of that would just be sort of word of mouth. You know, do you see a lot of word of mouth spreading around now and, you know, where you're going and installing new heat pump systems for maybe neighbors of people that you have previously done work for? And, you know, and, and they're just seeing like, you know, looking at their neighbors and saying, oh, wow, you know, I, I love your, your heating and cooling system. I want to get one of those, too. Are you seeing a lot more of that? Absolutely. As a matter of fact, you know, I'll I'll be candid about it. The biggest single segment of our, um, you know, customer attraction, people coming to us, come to us by, uh, I'll generalize it and call it referral. So it's people telling their friends, telling their neighbors, telling their family members, you know, people they work with um, about the experience that they had, you know, with heat pumps and, and with NETR um, and, and referring those folks to us, you know, to to sit and have a consultation and see if it's a good match for them. So um, it's, it's, uh, it's absolutely huge. And, and, and that really speaks to, I guess, I, I guess two pieces, you know, number one, it speaks to the technology, you know, that does everything that we promised that it would do. Otherwise people wouldn't be telling their friends, families, et cetera. Um, and, and then the second part is that, you know, NETR is, you know, we're, we're serving these customers well, and, and that actually also goes back to, to doing that right. You know, we, we have a very specific process that we follow uh, when we propose someone. And it's a process that Mike pioneered and, and, you know, it's integral to us. But properly doing load calculators with people so that we're sizing units right. Um, we're not oversizing them. We're not undersizing them. And, and, and for a lot of reasons, number one, energy consumption. Number two, most importantly, their comfort. Um, if you do this wrong, unfortunately, your home's not going to be as comfortable as it could be, um, or your energy costs will skyrocket or worse yet both. So, so yeah, we have a, a huge amount of people who are happy with, with their Mitsubishi systems, happy uh, with how we executed them. And they like telling their friends, family, coworkers, and, and, um, you know, that we take a lot of pride in that and it, and it makes us feel good. I'll share a personal story. This spring, we are doing a uh, home show in uh, Foxborough at the at the Patriots practice field, and uh, so we had our show booth out there. First time post COVID had been out in a couple of years, and I've been involved in sales for twenty plus years. I was astounded by the number of people who stopped by, stopped by the booth with for no other reason except for to say hi and how much they loved their mini split system uh that they got in you know a mitsubishi mini split they got in with netr they weren't there to get anything but it was um you know it was a wonderful sales tool when you're talking to someone who's finding out more about their home and mrs jones stops by and says you know best thing i ever did i did it with you six years ago i wish i had done it 10 years before that um so it was it made me really really proud and and, and very happy absolutely Dana, where are Mitsubishi Electric HVAC products manufactured? 
Well, um, Mitsubishi Electric has factories all over the world, um, more than a dozen factories uh, positioned all over the world. The U.S. marketplace is currently served by uh, factories in Japan, Thailand, but a huge portion of our products uh, currently uh, for the U.S. market come from a factory that's just over the border from San Diego um, in Mexico. So a lot of production. We're continuing to expand that factory, and we're we're looking around at possibilities for uh with the with the given demand in the United States, we're looking at opportunities to uh, establish factory here domestically. So, you know, we're you know the supply chain has been very tricky the last couple of years, and demand is off the charts, and it makes it really a challenge to try and meet demand. Um, you know, for for everyone around the country in the different product markets, but we're absolutely committed to that. And what's more is that Mitsubishi Electric U.S. is you know we're a U.S. based company. We have hundreds of employees that work, uh, you know, with contractors all across the country to support and service the consumers here in the U.S. and develop the products that are needed for the United States market. So, you know, we're we're very proud of of our engagement here, and we work so closely. We have, you know, NETR is a fantastic elite diamond contractor has been for many years. They're one of about 4,000 diamond contractors that we have around the country that we have go through our training sessions and, and work closely with us uh, and their distributor and our distributor partners to ensure best outcomes for consumers. This entire network and supply chain is really designed to ensure best outcomes for consumers so that you, know, you get what you need, you get what you want. And, you know, if there's ever any problems down the road, we are there to make sure it's right. And my final question, and you can all chime in on this, uh, you know, what mistakes should people avoid when getting heating and cooling installation done and, and making sure that they're selecting the, the right options? First thing is always remember, bigger is not better. <laughs> you know, I can always remember as as a kid and, you know, when you, I, I mean, I lived without air conditioning until I was probably about 13 years old, 14 years old. And, you know, your dad's like, oh, just go buy the biggest air conditioner you can, you can find to cool the house, you know. And sometimes that sounds good because it's big and it's really going to make the house really cold. But proper load calculations on homes, looking very closely at the envelope of the home, weatherization with the home, working with a mass safe contractor that has also done mass safe training as well because of these these rebates and stuff. I know I've done extensive training on on mass safe's website as far as just, you know, different things. I've spoken to many people at mass safe. I've done a lot of um different talks with them on integrated controls and, you know, how to use integrated controls properly. You know, there's a lot of mistakes with people installing integrated controls where you know, they're, they're putting them in for reasons that they shouldn't really be putting them in, I'm going to say. You know, so really making sure that the outcome of the system is going to give you what you ultimately need and working with the contractor that is experienced in air source heat pumps with a good distributor manufacturer network because there's a lot of manufacturers out there and there's a lot of distributors out there and there's a lot of manufacturers that claim that they have great support and you know here comes first problem and no one answers the phone no one can't get parts you can't get this you can't get that you know just really understanding the network i I can't agree with dana more than working with a it's a team of people that you know all the way up to you know vps that you can call and get 
you know, answers from on just supply chain products and all these other things that a lot of manufacturers don't have. I mean, Mitsubishi has been in the United States. There's a couple of them that came over first and they were one of the, one of the few. So, I mean, this isn't their first rodeo. They've been doing this for, I think over 30 years in the United States where some of these manufacturers have been in the United States. They've left the United States. They've come back to the United States. They've left the United States and they've come back again. I've seen that with many. So um, yeah, just be very, very cautious because sometimes it's not all about price. It's about quality and the team that you're working with. Yeah, we still I, I bump into some of those systems that are 30 years old and still running sometimes. Uh, you know, it's uh, they're extremely durable. Yeah. But uh, yeah, it's 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 it is about the network and, and you know, making sure that you get good outcomes. But and I think that, you know, part of the struggle is, you know, sort of relearning how to interface with your heating system. You know, people are used to growing up with, you know, central thermostats and heating systems yeah. and heat pumps perform a little bit differently and getting used to how they operate is a little bit different. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they do a lot more than people expect them to. You know, I, I've gone through a couple of different iterations uh, of heat pumps on my own house. My wife calls it the test house because, you know, I'm always working on different strategies and things. And so for a period of time, I just had one zone in my house and it was a small, small system, just a 9,000 BTU system. And I spent a couple of winters just seeing just how far I could get with it and treat it like a wood stove and just crank that sucker as hard as I could. And it's really astonishing how much heating load you can displace with a with a small number, you know, with just one unit, never mind just a couple of units. And the the heat does transfer pretty well across the house, particularly when there's a big difference to cold outdoor air temp- temperature. And so when I only had that one small unit, there were occasions where I had to supplement. But, you know, like when you sort of think, well, what if I don't have enough heat and what if it gets too cold and I'm beyond my design temperature? Well, the, the worst case scenario, if you're dramatically undersized, is that the house on the coldest day of the year will only be 65 degrees Fahrenheit. It's not a crisis. You, you know, it's just not a big deal. And so, like, having it be appropriately sized is not difficult. The hazard of having something that's oversized is you have a tendency to have higher electric bills. The cooling will happen so fast that it doesn't have a chance to remove the moisture in the summer and you end up with high humidity levels. And then, you know, if it's dramatically oversized, you have too much cycling over the course of the winter season. It uses more electricity than it needs. So the really, the, the picture perfect, the, the Goldilocks is really to, you know, make sure you're doing a very good energy model and sort of like doing a gut check against what your, your prior year fuel consumption was and then matching systems to those loads and not really just sort of saying, well, I have... X number of rooms, I need X number of indoor units, and the the corresponding outdoor unit is this. Yes. That's, that's a great methodology to ensure oversizing. You really want to select the indoor units on where you spend the time and where you need the heat, and then the outdoor units end up getting matched to the seasonal loads, not just looking at the maximum load that you're going to need on the coldest days, but also looking at what the minimum loads are going to be you know, during the shoulder seasons to ensure that you have a sustained, even smooth operation. That's where you really get incredible off the charts benefits. Very well said. Very well said. All right. Well, that's really great information. Dana Fisher, thanks again for speaking with us today. I really appreciate you being here. Yeah, no, absolutely. My pleasure, gentlemen. Thank you so much. And uh, good luck to everybody out there with your projects. Uh, Go heat pumps. (laughs) 
Thank you. Take care, guys. And I'm John Marr from Mike Capuccio and Brett Rogensky. Thanks for listening. And for more information about NETR, visit the website at netrinc.com or call 781-933-NETR. That's 781-933-6387. Thank you.